We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Welcome back to another episode of We Are Distractions Podcast, a weekly podcast where I, your host Alex, rotate between discussing true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, folklore, and a little bit of this and a little bit of that to provide you and more than likely what the world-renowned pumpkin carver would consider a weird distraction from everyday life. It's been a minute since I've been behind the mic, so I do a little bit of housekeeping I need to attend to and then we'll get into my need for distraction and then dive right into this week's creepy story. If none of this sounds up your alley, then feel free to skip ahead. I'm going to say about five, ten minutes. So in terms of housekeeping, just a reminder that Weird Destinations will be coming back this month over on Patreon. Weird Destinations is a little travel blog I do to share the reportedly haunted and borderline spooky places that I've been to. The posts include personal photos, tips, and history of the locations. You can check this out over at www.patreon.com slash weird distractions podcast. I'd also like to welcome both Susan and Jennifer to the weird distractions Patreon family. Thank you so much for your support and I hope you enjoyed the extra features over there. Now let's talk about what I need distraction from this week. As mentioned it's been a little bit since I've been behind the mic and that's because of a couple of different reasons. So first and foremost I recently got a tooth pulled and uh, bone grafting done. I didn't realize how much I probably needed a break during this period of time and that was kind of a, a big reason it's at, in terms of pain it's not as painful as I think I thought it was going to be but it's just the exhaustion that kind of comes with it and not only that too but having to go back and forth from where I live to the appointments which is about almost two hours away it's just it was it was chaos and then on top of that I've just been really burnt out with work again. (laughs) So I do love my new job. I'm super happy with it, but it is very busy. There's a lot to take in. There's a lot to learn. So I felt as if every night when I was coming home, the last thing I wanted to do was, you know, record or write a script or really do anything. Like I would try, but I just felt like my passion was a little bit muted because I was so tired and so stressed out. So as of right now, I'm feeling a little bit good. You know, I'm recording this just on the end of the Canadian Thanksgiving long weekend. And so feeling a little bit relaxed, if you will. And yeah, I've, I'm getting a little bit more ahead with my script. So that is fun. And I want to thank the boys over at Shots and Thoughts for letting me drop the episode I did with them for this past Sunday's episode. It really helped out. It gave me kind of a nice break from recording. So thank you, Sean, Chris, and Ryan for letting me do that. I also had a blast doing that episode. And if you haven't listened to it, you really should. And you should really follow along with Shots and Thoughts. They are hilarious. But now I think it's time for us to get into this week's distraction. So the last time that you kind of heard from me, we wrapped up the first ever two-parter, being the case of Gypsy and Dee Dee Blanchard. Although this week is a paranormal episode, we're not boot scooting too far away from a true crime. So this week's case was semi-inspired by this year's Midweek Mini Spook series, which the first two episodes are out on the main feed now for those who may have missed it. This year for the mini series, I focused on places in Ontario, aka Ominous Ontario. So this week we're heading over to Lucan, Ontario to discuss the reported history and haunts of the former Donnelly family homestead. 
Due to potential coarse language and adult themes that may be discussed, such as murder, death of an animal, and other distressing topics, listener discretion is advised. Now, for those tuning in who have no idea who the Donnelly family was and their importance within Luke and Ontario, and in general with Ontario, I guess I should say, I'm, I'm going to bring everyone up to speed. So don't worry. But for those who do know a lot about this family and its history, please be forewarned that I'm going to kind of be giving a Sparks Notes version of their story, not out of disrespect, of course, but, you know, we have a lot to, we have a lot of ground to cover. Let's just put it that way. That and my undiagnosed adult ADHD probably won't let me sit for too long to go over every single aspect of the family. But our story with the Donnellys started off with James and Johanna Donnelly. It sounds like a typical love story. The two fell in love, the in-laws weren't thrilled and the couple said heck it and got married regardless. The couple along with their son James Jr. immigrated into Ontario Canada from Ireland in about 1842. James Sr. would initially find work in the city of London and the small family of three would grow into a family of four before relocating within the Lucan Biddulph Township. For geographical reference, Lucan is about 25-ish minutes northwest of London, so they stayed somewhat close by, and for those who have no idea about what London, Ontario is, it's basically just one of our main cities in the province. Actually, if anyone remembers my good pal Celine from the Not Always Polite podcast, that's where she currently is, and she's covered quite a bit of their true crime stories out of that city, so go check out Not Always Polite. The Donnellys would go on to reportedly build a shanty, i.e. a shack-like house on the 18th lot on Concession 6 and Roman Line. At some point, you have to wonder if the shack may have been tight quarters, especially knowing that James and Johanna would have a total of several children. Due to the expansion of the family, James Sr. would go on to build on more of the property around them, which I'm sure this was done in order for his family to have more space to live, play, and, you know, grow. But not everyone was thrilled about the Donnelly's expansion, in which sources claim that James Sr. would have multiple arguments with his fellow neighbors about him building on what wasn't actually his property. Based on what I gathered online and kind of my understanding of the situation, the Donnelly's may have been on land owned by the Canada Company, which was being leased secondhand from a man named John Grace. John has been described as an absentee landlord. You know, one that is never around when you need them unless the rent is past due. John Grace apparently made an agreement with James Donnelly. John Grace apparently made an agreement with James Donnelly and his family to clear and work the land in exchange for them to reside there. To me, this agreement kind of seems like it was maybe messy, a little bit chaotic and downright confusing to say the least. I mean, who actually owned the land? Was this even a legal agreement? Where's where's the receipts? It's just, to me, it was just very, in retrospect, in 2022, this just seems like a landlord and tenant board issue dying to explode. As mentioned, not everyone was impressed with James Sr. and what he was doing on the property. So on June 25th of 1857, a man named William Maloney was having what was called a logging bee, which based on a brief search online seemed to be kind of like a social affair, so to speak. Some accounts say that this social affair was called a barn raising bee. Either way, it kind of sounds like a labor party to me. Kind of like when your employer wants to, quote, thank everybody for their hard work, end quote, with a pizza party. 
It's, it's like, thanks for the free pizza, but like a raise and more money would be better. Anyways, William is having the shindig, which James Sr. goes and reportedly gets into a physical altercation with a man named Patrick Farrell. A little backstory on Patrick. So Patrick seems to be one of those folks who weren't super keen on James's development plans. According to the Donnelly Museum website, there was a reported land dispute between the two. Let's kind of backtrack a little bit farther to see why there was so much contention between them. It kind of seemed as though the root of the argument between Patrick and James Sr. started when the landlord... John Grace decided to sell the property that the Donnellys were on, which James didn't like and refused to move. James felt that because he worked on the land for John, it was rightfully James's. Patrick Farrell comes into the narrative as he reportedly leased part of the lot occupied by the Donnellys. Patrick and James go to court and it was decided that the land, which the Donnellys were already on, would be equally divided 50 acres going to Patrick and 50 to the Donnellys. Back to the whole physical argument that was happening at this labor party. The fight actually ended with Patrick losing his life at the reported hands of James. Because of this, James Sr. would be apprehended and spend some time at the Goddard's jail, and then he was transported to the Kingston Penitentiary, just nearly missing the death penalty once his verdict came in. James Sr. would only spend about several years in Kingston, and during his absence, his family wasn't necessarily doing so well in terms of winning the respect and appreciation of the community. In direct quote from the Toronto Ghost website, quote, the remaining Donnelly clan was subject to abuse and ridicule, which made the boys especially hard. Needless to say, they became scrappers and drinkers and earned reputations as never-do-wells. End quote. The Donnellys had seemingly created a reputation for themselves and it wasn't necessarily the greatest rep to boast. In the book Haunted Ontario by Terry Boyle, the Donnellys were even described as being town bullies. Accounts state that the Donnelly boys were reportedly being charged with things such as verbal and physical assault, arson, trespassing, attempted murder, and more. What made people in the community even more sour was how authorities were handling the Donnellys. Supposedly, many of the run-ins with the law that the Donnellys had weren't being met with hard time behind bars. In another quote from Wikipedia, quote, the Donnellys were not found guilty of everything of which they were accused, but through their actions, they made many enemies within the township. This seems to indicate that the Donnellys were a constant source of strife and destruction in their community. But these types of crimes were common for the county in which they lived. It was not just the men of the family who would get into altercations with the law as Johanna was noted to swear at officers quite often, especially Constable Carroll, end quote. Needless to say, some people living within the area were at their wits end with the Donnellys, which to be fair, I think if there was a family causing havoc and not being punished for it within my neighborhood, I too would be pretty annoyed. Things seemingly escalated even more come 1879, when James Sr., who had been released from Kingston Penitentiary, had spoken out in presumed favor of Protestant folks within a Catholic church and went against what a Catholic priest was saying about Protestants. So basically he was standing up for Protestants against a Catholic priest in a Catholic Catholic Church. The Donnelly family were known to be friends with Protestant folks, which in my opinion, that's not really a big deal, but because the situation reportedly took place at the St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Church during a peace society meeting, yeah, 
needless to say, it was a little bit of a tense situation. But let's backtrack a little bit. Let's talk about this group. So the Peace Society group, as far as my understanding, was a group of people within the community on some vigilante shit. The priest of the church who was talking smack about Protestants and leading this group was reportedly Father John Connolly. Father John had supposedly been asked to come to the area by a man referred to as Bishop Walsh. The bishop wanted Father Connolly to come and investigate some of the crimes taking place within the area. Basically, he was asking a Catholic priest to do what a police officer should do. So Father Connolly comes in, makes this group within the community to kind of tackle down on the crime. Kind of think of it as kind of a old timey neighborhood watch vibe happening here. Father James Connolly had asked the members, including the Donnellys, to pledge to have some of their homes searched for stolen goods to eliminate suspects and, well, to make sure everyone wasn't stealing from one another. The Donnellys allegedly did not agree to do this, which consider this a strike for the Donnellys in the eyes of the peace group. As mentioned before, James had also seemingly put himself in the line of fire by standing up for Protestants in front of Father Connolly, so another strike. And a direct quote to make things a little bit more clear taken from Wikipedia, quote, John Connolly was reported to be preaching hatred against Protestants when James Donnelly stood up in the church and denounced the priest for his hatred and said his family would go to the Catholic Church in London. The Donnellys had many Protestant friends, many of whom attended their funeral. The Peace Society's role was to uphold its code, something the Donnellys were never shy about ignoring. James Donnelly was liberal enough that at one point he even donated money to the building of the Anglican Church, outraging the Peace Society in the process, end quote. So to kind of summarize all of this, James Donnelly was not a big fan of John Connolly, the priest. And I think John Connolly maybe came in and kind of thought, okay, you know, this is a small community that is being ravished by crime and just kind of all over the place. I'm going to come in, take over, help organize things and help keep things peaceful. But in that sense, he also was coming in with his own biases about different religions, which James Donnelly was not about. So it just kind of seemed like the two were really butting heads and they continued to butt heads and the Donnellys continued to kind of have strikes up against them when it came to the Peace Society group. Now, I don't know the fine details of how Father Connolly took James's remarks. It may be out there, but I didn't come across it in my research. What I did come across is after this kind of ako-tako situation happened, an offshoot group was formed, which was known as the Vigilante Community slash Society. This group would include Father John Connolly and the neighbors of the Donnellys, which I'm sure we may be able to easily agree that they probably got together over mutual feelings over the Donnellys. So the offshoot Vigilante group would begin meeting at the Cedar Swamp Schoolhouse in Lucan, about five kilometers northwest of where the Donnellys were living. One meeting in particular, and I think maybe perhaps the only meeting they had, took place in early of February of 1880. And of course, I don't have the meeting minutes to go off of. But what happened next may be an indicator as to what the conversations may have circled around. There are some details I'm leaving out, not to be once again disrespectful to the history of what happened, but rather we still have some spooky stuff to discuss, so we gotta keep steam rolling along. Jumping to just after midnight on February 4th of 1880, 
1880, the Donnellys were awoken to see a described mob of 35 men outside of their home, often referred to as the Donnelly Homestead. Constable Carroll, who I briefly name-dropped earlier, was a part of this group, and he solely entered the Donnelly home. Unannounced and uninvited, of course. Constable Carroll would let James Sr. and his son, Tom, know that they, plus their son slash brother John Donnelly, were under arrest. John was not at home, but Johanna and James's 20-year-old niece, Bridget, were and woke up due to all this commotion. Let's focus on that word for a second. Commotion. The commotion that was unfolding in front of the Donnellys was probably increased due to accounts that claim that Constable Carroll was intoxicated. To add more mess to the situation, Carroll didn't even have a warrant for anyone's arrest, and based on what I gathered, there wasn't really any grounds for an arrest at this point in time. This is why you probably shouldn't drink on the job, and why you should always try to at least have your shit somewhat together. Anyways, once the Donnellys figured out that Carroll didn't have a warrant, and perhaps picked up on the fact that he was slish-slosh kiboshed, it all went downhill from there. Perhaps a moment of clarity, or realizing he needed backup, Carol let out some form of signal, which notified the rest of the folks outside to come into the Donnelly home. The mob of local men came into the home bearing weapons such as supposed firearms, a pitchfork, an axe, a shovel, some clubs, and a shortened stake made of cordwood. In other words, the mob wasn't coming in in terms of peace, and they weren't coming in for an impromptu labor party. The mob began beating James, Johanna, Bridget, Tom, and even the family dog to death within the family's kitchen. Once done, they realized they still needed to locate John Donnelly, and so the mob decided they needed to come up with another plot to finally rid their community of the Donnellys, as written on Wikipedia. As they left the homestead, the alleged vigilante group lit the Donnelly home on fire. The fire engulfed the home with the bodies of James, Johanna, Bridget, and Tom still inside. The fire burned for hours, and all that would eventually remain from the original Donnelly home would be the two front steps. The mob didn't stick around to watch the family home burn, though. As mentioned, they were on a mission to now find John Donnelly and, well, murder him. Earlier, I mentioned that it was considerably fair for the community to perhaps be annoyed with how the Donnellys were reportedly getting away with things. However, this alleged vigilante group seemingly took things way too far. But to their downfall, the group didn't realize that there was someone else in the home during all of this, meaning there was an eyewitness. A local boy named Johnny O'Connor was reportedly at the Donnelly's home that dreadful February night as he was asked to assist them with farm work. Johnny had slept over and was unseen by the mob, surprisingly. I mean, the house was pretty small. I doubt he had much choice for hiding spaces. Regardless, he was able to hide from them, which is great, huge. Resources I came across know that Johnny was able to escape the home before it was set ablaze, where he would go to a nearby neighbor's home. Once there, he reportedly told them what happened. Johnny indicated that he watched the mob ruthlessly murder the Donnellys, their dog, with little to no reason. He also also was able to give some of the names of the men there, which we will discuss in a bit, but this was huge given that the group, as mentioned, didn't suspect anyone would be around to witness their actions. But back to the evening of chaos and crazy commotion, the mob went to Will Donnelly's home, located just under five kilometers from the now destroyed Donnelly homestead. In a direct quote from the writings of Mary Jane Colbert regarding what happened when the mob got to Will's, quote, the mob then went to the home of Will Donnelly. Further up the road, when the door opened, they shot and killed his brother, John, who was spending the night at Will's house. Thinking they'd kill Will, the ringleader of the family, the murderers left the scene of the crime and went off to celebrate 
end quote. So a little bit of confusion there because everything I came across said that they were trying to kill John. Some sources also are clearly claiming that it was Will. I think no matter who it was, if your last name was Donnelly, you were kind of on a hit list. And I should rephrase that. If your name was Donnelly and you were in the area, you were on a hit list. Only six of the reported 35 men who were part of this vigilante committee were arrested, including Thomas Ryder, James Carroll, John Pertell, Martin McLaughlin, John Kennedy, and James Ryder. After two trials, none of the men served time. In fact, they were never found guilty. Instead, accounts claim that the juries for either cases wouldn't give a guilty verdict. With that, the men went free. For people tuning in wondering how this could have happened, based on what I gathered online, there was a lack of hard evidence during both trials. Even though Johnny was an eyewitness, it didn't really seem to matter. On top of that, there seemed to have been some kind of contention regarding the religious aspect of it all, which listeners may have picked up on earlier. Basically, it seemed as if those who were Catholic maybe had more popularity amongst the community, hence why the Donnellys were also unfavored since they stood up for Protestant folks, which may have impacted the trials. Stepping away from the legality surrounding this incident, the property of where this massacre took place was given another chance at life. Reports claim that in 1881, the surviving Donnelly family members built another home on the original Donnelly property nearby where the former shack once stood. Five chestnut trees were also planted on the property in memory of those lives lost. Based on what I read in the 1998 book written by Terry Boyle, the home remained in the Donnelly family until the late 1930s. The Donnellys and their demise have been discussed throughout generations regarding the darker side of Canadian history. And the family has even been recognized in the local Lucan Museum, which is called the Lucan Area Heritage and Donnelly Museum. Now that we're acquainted with the Donnellys and what devastatingly happened, let's talk about some weird spooky claims that have circled around their former property. kick off the spooky talk by discussing the reports from Linda and Robert Saltz, who moved to the Donnelly property in 1988. Reports such as the novel Haunted, Ontario by Terry Boyle, know that the family relocated to the former Donnelly property from the city of London. The Saltz family, including the couple's son, Charles, moved in August of 1988, and based on what I read, they knew the bloody history of the property. But that was decades prior, and Linda was from the area, so I imagine in some regard this was kind of like a coming home adventure for her, so to speak. I can imagine that, despite knowing what happened, that was maybe the least of the family's concerns. The presumed happy emotions tied with moving into the home changed within a few months when Linda reportedly began suffering from depression which seemingly manifested every time she was in the kitchen. Knowing the history of the home and noticing this kind of weird emotional shift, the Saltz family reportedly called a local Catholic priest named Father Smith and requested he do an exorcism of the home. Father Smith reportedly wasn't hot and heavy with the idea of an exorcism, but he offered to bless the home. The novel Haunted Ontario by Terry Boyle mentions how the Saltz family were Protestant in faith, but felt that whatever was causing the depression in the kitchen for Linda seemingly had a Catholic background, which I don't know how you could really pick up on that. I mean, I'm neither Catholic or Protestant, but I don't know, maybe it was just kind of a, a shot in the dark given the history and ties to Catholic faith, I guess. I don't know. Let me know what you think, but definitely a 
a weird thing to pick up on, I guess, or to think you know, I don't know. After the blessing took place, both Linda and Rob experienced what seemed to be an emotional roller coaster. They apparently experienced grief, sadness, anger, etc. The paranormal phenomena doesn't end here. I'm going to rapid fire explain some of the accounts which I gathered with the help from Terry Boyle's novel, which of course will be linked in today's episode notes. So there have been reports of phantom footsteps in the middle of the night, where it seems as if it can sound like footsteps are within and outside of the home. For example, there have been accounts hearing people walking up the stairs within the home, or I believe within the front porch or something to that nature. As well, there have been random crashing sounds that have been heard throughout the night, Initially, I think the Salts family thought that maybe this was just ice falling off the roof. However, eventually they came to realize that that wasn't the case. Folks inside the home have heard their name called three times by an unknown voice. For example, Robert reportedly heard his name called one time at 1.29 a.m., which to his fear, he realized it wasn't his wife or his son or anybody else that was staying over, even though I don't think it actually indicated in the novel that there was anybody else over at the house at the time. So who was it? Shadow figures have been seen within the home. And for one example, I'm going to directly quote from Terry Boyle's book. Quote, one Saturday around noon, Robert was having a shower. He glimpsed the shadow of a person on the shower curtain. It came into the bathroom through the open door and went back out. Robert immediately turned off the water, grabbed a towel and walked to the living room. Once there, he asked Linda and his son Charlie if either of them had just come into the bathroom. The answer was no. Robert and his son tried to recreate the shadow on the curtain, but to no avail. No matter how they adjusted the bathroom light, they were unable to make the same moving shadow, end quote. And on that same Saturday, supposedly, Linda reportedly heard disembodied voices asking her either, is anybody home or don't you know this is my home? Poltergeist-like activity also seemingly has taken place at the former Donnelly Homestead. During one occasion, Robert and Linda were putting away dishes they inherited from Robert's late father when the pair were interrupted by a phone call. When they returned to their previous task, they noticed one particular saucer had been placed in the cabinet that wasn't prior to and that the cabinet door had been opened on its own. Another poltergeist instance that reportedly happened involved a moved laundry basket. Linda had supposedly discovered that the laundry basket she had out under the clothesline had seemingly moved on its own about six meters away from where she had left it when she returned back to the scene. This supposedly happened in the wintertime, i.e. a time where there was more than likely snow on the ground, and yet there were no alleged footsteps or marks to indicate how the clothes basket had moved. There have been accounts of people witnessing things moving around on their own and, you know, disappearing. So I can imagine it's one of those situations where let's say you leave your car keys on the kitchen table, walk away from the kitchen, come back, the car keys are gone only to find them in the upstairs bathroom in like a medicine cabinet or something like that. Just very spooky poltergeist stuff going on. But moving away from the poltergeist stuff, which... See what I did there? Moving away, poltergeist stuff. Yeah. Anyways, I did want to mention another really spooky report from the Salts family, which includes phantom sounds of a handsaw. And a direct quote from page 86 of Terry Boyle's novel, quote, One time they heard the sound of a handsaw. Robert explained that Linda was taking groceries out of the car next to the drive shed. And as she walked by the doors, she distinctly heard the sound of a handsaw coming from within. At first, Linda reportedly thought her 
husband, Robert, was responsible for this. However, she quickly realized Robert wasn't home and that the doors to the home were locked. There had been reports of people visiting the property, seeing someone poking their head from the barn before sometimes hearing a scream. The weird aspect of this scream is that folks report that they hear it within their own head while experiencing a heavy presence on their chest. Horses also seem to be affected by the property and to elaborate on this, here's a direct quote from the Waymarking website. Quote, there are a few stories about horses related to this haunting. That includes horses not going on Roman line on the night of February 3rd and 4th, as well stories that horses will not pass the Donnelly homestead at all and that they will pitch a fit if brought on the property. This story has been sustained by former owners of the property, end quote. There have also been reports of folks seeing apparitions of what seems to be a former Donnelly family member on the property within the no home looking out the windows. I wasn't able to see specifically who this apparition was, whether it was James Sr., Johanna, Bridget, whomever, but needless to say, I think seeing any apparition, still scary, no matter who it is. Perhaps they're looking out from the window at the present property forever stuck in the past. Speaking of the present, I think it's ample time to summarize this week's distraction. When it comes to the Donnelly family and their reputation in Ontario, I think it would be a fight to try and ignore their history and the massacre they had to experience in their final moments within the province. Yes, they may have had their reputation and may have done some shady stuff, including homicide, not going to ignore that, but does that mean they had to endure what they did? Did the members of the family who lost their lives really had to lose their lives in order to, I don't know, have the community feel like they accomplished something? Form of revenge. And not only that, but did that entire family bloodline have to experience so much trauma because of what happened? I wonder if that trauma and what happened within the property has become so entrenched that now we are seeing it as a manifestation of activity that seemingly cannot be explained. For those wondering, Linda and Rob eventually turned the property into a site tour. These tours, which I believe were hosted by Rob, lasted for about 30 years and ended in 2018. Even though the tours have ended a part of me wonders if the paranormal activity continues to happen to this day. As always, let me know your thoughts over on social media or by email. And if you have an experience on this property, please hit me up. Let me know what you encountered. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else who will listen about the show. You can tell them to find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, and many more. If you're streaming the show on Apple Podcasts, or good pods, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review. This helps the show out for free by letting others know that it's worth listening to. Another way to support the show for free and to never miss an update is to follow along on the show's various social media accounts. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. My handle is at WeirdDistractI1 and TikTok. If you want to financially support the show and get yourself a little something extra each month, why not join one of the two tiers over on Patreon? Each month, you get exclusive exclusive content such as bonus episodes and series, the Weird Destinations travel posts, plus early access to the regular feed episodes. You can find out which tier is best suited for you by going to patreon.com slash weirddistractionspodcast. Shout out to my current patrons, aka my weird little family members, Tom, Bailey, Angela, John, Alicia, Lynn, Susan, Shadow, Courtney, and Cheryl. I love you all and appreciate your ongoing support of Weird Distractions. If you're 
you're unable to support the show on a monthly basis, but still want to support it maybe as a one-time donation, check out the show's merch over on Redbubble or sign up for a one-time donation over on Buy Me A Coffee. Lastly, I want to hear from you. As some longtime listeners may recall, Christy and I released two listener story-based episodes called Listener Distractions. I'd love to keep doing this series and hear all of your weird tales of ghostly encounters, unexplainable events, and too close to home true crime stories. You can email me your tales at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. As well, send me feedback. If there are any corrections that need to be made after today's episode, let me know. And as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye.